welcome to this week's episode of the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall, and you might already know this, um, but you are listening to a wellness podcast, and that probably means a combination of things. First, you either probably know me or my work, or somebody said like, hey, you should go listen to this show, which is awesome, and I'm glad you're here. You're also probably either some kind of fitness or wellness lifestyle adjacent practitioner, or you're someone who's looking to do some work in and around yourself, which again, really glad that you're here. It also means you probably have spent some time in wellness spaces. And while I'd like to believe that I have a diverse audience, um, I also feel like I should set a few stages for you in the conversation that I want to invite you into. Wellness has, for much of its existence as an industry, catered to a few specific demographics historically. The first is having money, right? You've got to have the expendable income to be able to afford whatever overpriced fatty wellness thing is going on right now to buy the gym membership and the special organic food and the special like beauty treatments and lotions and the trainer and the coach and the, and the, and the, and, right? Like there's a lot of investment financially. And so it starts there. The next demographic traditionally around the wellness space is being thin, right? Who wellness is traditionally for and also the fitness space. How do we market it? Who shows up in those spaces? And in that messaging, and we've talked about this on the show before, there is some baked in fat shame and fat phobia that pushes either who wellness is for or what what wellness is for. And obviously, if you listen to the show, you know I disagree big with that one. Also, mostly mainstream wellness has been a particular conception of what it is for to be female and that it is for females, right? That's primarily the messaging of the wellness space is there's a certain kind of woman and you're trying to be that kind of woman or you are that kind of woman, all of which limits the message of access of who it's for. We talked about ableism before on the show and as somebody with a chronic illness that sometimes disables me, being in the fitness and wellness space has often created times that I have felt on the outside or like I had to project being able-bodied so that I would be accepted and respected as a practitioner. And another big demographic in the fitness and wellness space is being white. Who are our practitioners that are examples? Who are we selling it to and for? And if me taking these off is already making you kind of want to lean back and shut the episode off. I want to share some statistics with you. You know I love data. When I make a point, I try to back that point up. So the most recent data I could find in the space around this topic was a report by McKinsey in September of 2022. The $450 billion, billion with a B, U.S. wellness market in this McKinsey report, 47 to 55% of Black consumers who or responded to this survey, said that they needed more wellness products and services that specifically meet their needs, whereas it was 30% of white consumers in the same report. So about half in black consumers, about a third of white consumers. But I do also think in these last few years of reflection and messaging that things are shifting. So in that same report, reported that 60% of black consumers responding prioritize their wellness more than they did last year. The invitation is being put out there. But it's not only about wellness products. If you listened to the episode with Tasha Edwards, you heard me owning 
that she, I had never thought about it before I had met Tasha, that she was the only black Pilates instructor I had ever met in over 10 years in the fitness space. And for many people, when you don't see someone in a space, you think that that space is not for you. The wellness industry was for white women, but it is changing. And I love that for us. And my guest today is here to share space and brain candy about how we got here, how hopefully it's getting better and why, and I am deeply of like mind here. It hurts all of us when we present wellness like it's only one thing and only for one kind of person. So this is one of those episodes where I want to invite you. It is not a calling out. It is a calling in. Not only for you, our listener, but for me too. I love Dahlia's work because Dahlia has opened my eyes too and made me a better practitioner. I think we can all be better. That is kind of what better than fine is all about. It's even baked in the title. So even if some of what Dahlia is here to share with us is feels left field to you, suspend those preconceptions, lean in to an expert practitioner's experienced wisdom. Dahlia Kinsey is a queer, black, registered dietitian, keynote speaker, and the author of Decolonizing Wellness, a QT BIPOC-centered guide to escape the diet trap, heal your self-image, and achieve body liberation. Dahlia, welcome to Better Than Fine. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. I'm so glad that you said yes. I've wanted you on the show for a long time, and I'm really excited to get to have this conversation with you. And I mean it when I say that it I, I believe very strongly it's going to make me better. Um, so selfishly, I'm so excited to have you. Well, that's the beauty um, of having a podcast, right? You get to have on <laughs> hosts yep. that can help you focus on the areas where you want to grow. Uh, I have a podcast as well, and that is totally what I use it for. Yeah, the fact your that podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. The fact that we're even having this conversation is a sign that there is progress. So I think that you're right. Things are changing. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And I, I believe partly because of you. Um, so let's let's dive into that conversation. You know, in your book, you share your experience as a queer, black, non-binary person who is studying nutrition. I think that that story that you share in your book really sets the stage of what it is where I want to talk about and I want to share with the listeners. Could, could you talk a bit about that journey and that tension between your identities and your education? When I originally decided to study dietetics, I had some very inaccurate ideas about what nutrition, studying nutrition in the United States would be like. I Mm. grew up with a grandparent that was really into using food as medicine and loved moving her body for the sake of moving her body. So I really grew up thinking that if I was in a nutrition program, any kind of wellness-centered program, that that would have some kind of influence. I really didn't understand that allopathic medicine or Western medicine typically is more about dealing with symptoms and isolation and that nutrition, a lot of times, it is really the same way. Medical nutrition therapy kind of focuses on one problem at a time, not so much prevention, not in a deep way. Like what everybody knows about healthy eating was essentially as deep as we went in the program. Mm. What I also didn't expect was that it would be so fat phobic. And at the time I was really young and in my opinion, really thin, (laughs) not thin by really Eurocentric standards. I was at that size where, and I've shared this with 
a lot of black Americans have had the same experience. You're told at home that you're too thin. And then when you go out into the world and you're around all your white American peers, everybody thinks you're too big. So that body policing is terrible on both fronts because it's not like you have direct tight control over your body size. So basically no one needs to be commenting on or policing other people's bodies. But that was one disconnect with body image that I already had dealt with just in public school in general, but in the program, it was on another level. And you mentioned that you live with chronic illness. I was going through the worst part of my Graves disease experience Mm. in undergrad, but I hadn't been diagnosed. I was fighting to get diagnosed. And by fighting, I mean just going to like a million doctor's appointments. But you know, autoimmune disease can be elusive when you're trying to get it diagnosed. But also if you're a femme presenting person, people like to ignore what women or anybody who looks like a woman to them has to say. So it tends to take us longer to get diagnosed with literally everything or anything. (laughs) So I had that experience going on. And then the stress of in almost every single class that dealt with public health and outcomes for specific groups of people, there was always this assumption that there was no one black in the room. So people would talk about black Mm. people like I wasn't there. And when I had insights or input that I wanted to share about black American culture as somebody who is a whole lot closer to it than my peers were, they didn't want to hear it. Like they dismissed everything I had to say. There were only three people of color in the core of the program. So at the start of the program, you know, you're in there with everybody else. This school is known for being diverse, or at least that's a big part of their marketing. So when I got in, I thought, oh, everybody's going to be there. It's going to have all these international vibes. It's going to be great. And the first couple of years it was, and then the first day in the dietetic program, I really felt like all the air had been sucked out the room. I entered the room and all I saw was a sea of thin, white, middle-class femme faces. They didn't Mm. even let any poor looking girls in. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was just like, I just thought, oh my goodness, where am I? What happened? Can I speak to the poor looking thing for a second? Mm. Because some of the experiences that you're sharing are experiences that I had as someone who grew up rural poor, though obviously, you know, Caucasian. Um, You know, my, my grandparents used to say all the time as a kid, like you come from a long line of big, beautiful women. And then I'd go to school Mm -hmm. and be called fat because I'm a big woman. And um, I, you know, at grad school, I was like passing for affluence. It was a very strange experience. I had not ever been in a situation before where I was assumed to be wealthy. And it was very uncomfortable for me as a middle-aged white woman in the room where people are talking about certain experiences, but they're not talking about them with the people of color in the room for the most part. And to realize, oh, you think I'm more like you than like them. Hmm. That's very interesting, (laughs) like capital I interesting. Um, So for for you to share the assumption, right, of um, I'm not like them in, in lots of identities, But for me, it was the flip side of like identity and how uncomfortable it made me. I I, like, I don't know if you have anything you want to speak to that at all, but I do think that there's an assumption in wellness spaces that if you present enough like 
then you are the like of all of the other things <laughs> in that right. collection. And I think part of, you know, what I want to talk about with you is how we dismantle some of this. And I think part of it is the assumption of like identity. Okay, you've got two of the boxes checked, it must be the other four or whatever, right? The ableism thing's a big one for me, obviously. Right. Um, do you have any thoughts on that you want to unpack? I, I think a lot of people, because they've internalized shame about anything that makes you different or other and being from a lower income household, even as a white person, a cisgender person, a straight person, that's definitely an other in the United mm. States, even though we talk about upward mobility and most of the planet thinks like this is a place where classism doesn't exist. True, you can change social classes here in some places. Mm. It's near impossible sometimes. to do. Right, sometimes. But the classism, it is strong here. Even the oh, yeah. fact that we all know some of these visual markers of being lower income. And, and especially with people with straight hair. So since white folks are making up the majority of the U.S. population, I feel like the class markers for how you do your hair, if you have yep. straight hair, it's yep. so easy for people to spot. If you can't afford to constantly be getting those split ends trimmed, everybody clocks that you aren't living in the lap of luxury and don't think you're going to get your hair highlighted and then not keep up with it. Then you're letting everybody know you're financial business. You see what I'm on about. <laughs> it really was. There was definitely yeah. stigma with that too, because oh, when yeah. they would present studies in class about essentially what I was hearing was people living in poverty have these challenges to overcome to access wellness, but they were assuming every person of color lives in poverty mm -hmm. and ignoring that the majority of people living in the in poverty in the United States are white because the majority of people in the United States are white. And people just refuse to understand that you could be alienating someone in this classroom who is passing for affluent and yep. they don't feel comfortable letting you know, I'm actually not, I wasn't raised with all this access and privilege and I had food insecurity as a child too. Why would you out yourself as different if that feels so deeply uncomfortable. I mean, most people, we're all such social creatures. Social isolation feels like it's life-threatening. Yeah. So usually totally. if you have an option to not risk being ostracized, you're going to take it. And for yeah. a lot of people, it takes years for you, get, for you to get to the point that you are more committed to being true to yourself than you are to trying to fit in. And it's sad because only when you get to that point, can you actually find the places where you do fit in yeah. is when you start showing up fully as yourself, because there are so many people who relate to that experience of not having access to a lot of financial resources. It's hardly even showcased in our entertainment. I will never forget someone. This was in 2020 when we were all so desperate for company. We were probably all mm. talking to people we didn't need to be talking to. But this woman <laughs> said to me, I, I had said something positive about how I found it nourishing as a child to see shows like Roseanne, never mind what Roseanne ended up doing later on in life. But at the time, it was revolutionary to see a lower income working class family of any color featured put out in front of us, like these people are interesting. Their lives are worth worrying about. We don't need to make them invisible. They're not, you know, people to stigmatize. And she said, well, why in the world would you want to just, why would you want to watch a bunch of poor people? 
I'm like, wow, you just spoke straight from your heart. But because all people are valid and I find a variety of lived experiences interesting, fascinating, and helpful because there's more than one way to be a human being, I don't want to just hear one group of people's story. And it's not only one identity that any of us can relate to, right? Um, you know, I just I just had an amazing conversation with a good friend of mine a few days ago where he was sharing how much he loved watching Dawson Creek growing up, even though he's a black man. And when he went to school and was like, this is a great show. Don't you want to watch this show with me? All his friends made fun of him because why was he watching a white show when really for him, it was just a story that he liked. Um, so you're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Darlene Marshall. My guest is Dahlia Kinsey, and we are sharing about Dahlia's book, Decolonizing Wellness, some of the themes around it. And right now we're on this deep dive around the way that identity and you know clean to projected identities is often the ways that we become socially acceptable in a group. And what it what is resonating for me, Dahlia, is this idea that if wellness is projected as only for a certain group of people, yet the tools and resources of the wellness space are really something that everyone can benefit as long as we're out here pushing one cluster of identities. And it's funny for me because I, I intentionally left out um, sexual identity in that tick list because I do think it's one of the places where like we kind of get away with it, right? Right. But you you even just identified, like, I'm straight passing. I don't identify as straight. Mm. But I'm straight passing, so everybody assumes another middle-aged white woman in the wellness space. Um, so it's just very interesting the way that we build these clusters. Um, and, and you as a practitioner, I so admire how you pushed through um this discomfort that you're sharing. And so can you peel the onion back another layer for us? So you're in this space, they're saying all kinds of stupid stuff. How do you go from there to where you are now? Which I realize is a big journey for you to unpack in just a few minutes. Well, it's funny, by the time I got to graduation, I was so burned out, I didn't want to enter the field. I was really questioning, do I even want to go into the space? And it's interesting because especially after 2020, some people in the field of dietetics kept saying they wanted to see what they could do to get the field to be more diverse. And they kept focusing on income barriers. And basically, they kept leaning into all of their stereotypes about what the barriers are for people of color instead of asking people of color what the barriers were. Mm. I had already gone through the program. The barrier was the experience of going to school in such an anti-Black, anti-queer anti-fat environment was so emotionally difficult. And I don't mean like, oh, I was crying every day. I mean that some days I was in such a rage after class, it gave me heartburn. Who wants to be upset all the time? Why would I go into a field where I'm going to be upset all the time? I wanted to be in this field to help people. And I assumed in a helping field, I would be surrounded by people who, even if they didn't have a lot of exposure to other cultural backgrounds or different people, period, that they would be heart-centered people, loving people, mindful people, and would be capable of not doing constant harm to everyone who's different from them. But I, I was sadly mistaken. This particular mm. cohort was not heart-centered and hadn't worked through a lot of their own 
self-hatred. It's really interesting how very loving people, even with no exposure to diversity, have such a greater capacity for compassion that they're so much farther ahead than people who haven't been raised to really think about other people's perspectives, even other people who you imagine are similar to you. If you haven't been raised to be compassionate or to be mindful or to be thoughtful, everything that's moving and shifting now is very challenging for you because you were never told it was a priority. You were just yeah, taught to assume every you. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You've said a few things I want to circle back to. Um, I mean, first of all, I just want to call out, if anybody hearing this open heart-centered uh, reference that Dahlia is making, go back and listen to the toxic positivity episode and you'll unpack if you need some <laughs> reference points on that. But for, for our listener... I, I would you can you unpack for us? You, you mentioned like anti-blackness in your education. And I think for somebody who's not familiar with systemic anti-blackness and the research specifically in the nutrition space, can you talk about what that even looks like so that for somebody who this is totally left field for them, they don't they don't get it, but they want to get it. Why would our mainstream education and discourse on nutrition be inherently anti-Black? Because of the history of our country, because of the history of even medical research in this country, mm. so much of what we have now is directly linked to experimentation that was done on enslaved people. Yep. So there is a long history of teaching people in healthcare and in wellness by extension to dehumanize non-European people or non-white people. And even what white is, the definition of whiteness has changed a lot over the years. So there were certainly times when that dehumanization also would have affected people who recently arrived here from Ireland or recently arrived here from Italy. Mm -hmm. But a direct result of the transatlantic slave trade was that people felt they needed to keep dehumanizing the people they were trafficking and enslaving because naturally most humans really have trouble with intense amounts of cruelty against other humans. Yeah. So you see it all the time, even during wartime, typically there's an effort to dehumanize the enemy to make it easier for people to end the lives of other people who sometimes they're like in your peer group. Imagine going out and being asked to kill someone else who's 19 years old. Most people can't just do that. You have to dehumanize the target first. So similarly, everyone, if you're raised in the United States, you've been raised in an anti-Black soup. You didn't get to opt in. You were born here. You've been in it. No matter how sweet the adults around you were, everybody's been in it. And I was born in the 80s. If you just go back, and a lot of us did this during the pandemic because we ran out of things to watch. If you look at some of the shows, yeah. some of the movies we watched in the 80s and the 90s, the jokes about uh, just, it's it's gnarly yeah. when you go back yeah. and you watch it. Yeah. Even if you don't remember every little instance of anti-Blackness or um ableism that you saw growing up you know and when phobia and misogyny and you yeah. just absorb it when you're a child the way humans work we don't question everything when we're children you're trying to learn very quickly 
how to secure your space and the social environment you were born into. So you just take everything in. If you say something and everyone laughs at you and you feel embarrassed, in your 30s and your 40s, you may still have a hang up about um, raising your hand in meetings because of that one time people laughed at you in elementary school. You take in everything and you don't question it. So even if the information that you keep having presented to you, like, oh, women aren't that funny. These are some of the popular messages from yeah, the yeah. 90s. Women aren't funny. Um, all Black people are poor. Black people steal a lot. Um, black people aren't clean. Like the, it's in so many of the things we watched growing up, even during COVID, there was a public official who asked on camera, not trying to be funny, not trying to be mean, not trying to be racist. He asked on camera, why are the health outcomes so much worse for our black citizens? Are they not washing their hands? Did you see that? Oh, no. I thought you were going to make the uh, I'll have to send reference. you the link so you can put you, it in the show notes. <laughs> you make a reference. Um, I can't remember if I saw it on your socials or if it's in the book where you talk about um, um, like racism is the most prevalent like lifestyle disease or something like like I, now I can't pull up your quote. I thought that's where you were going. But yeah, like that's I'm totally caught off guard. <laughs> When I saw it, I just shook my head. And it's funny because I'm partnered with a cis white head dude. Uh, people also read me as straight a lot, yeah. even though. Straight passing. What's up? <laughs> also cis white head. <laughs> but even when he saw it, he was like, do what now? He was really taken aback. But I'm like, yeah. this is what people believe. And I'm like, they may not be saying it anymore. But this is a message that I saw in media. And I've seen people respond to me in a way that indicated that that's how they felt growing up. So th there's just so many instances of me going into a sauna or into a spa area and everybody leaving, getting into a pool with my family oh. and everybody getting out. Like that people probably don't I'm even- so mad. <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is I would love to know how many people even- registered why do i suddenly want to get out i wasn't planning on getting out like what is i'm oh. not even sure everyone is putting it together but if you suddenly feel like oh i don't really know not that you don't like any black people but maybe you find yourself reluctant to stand near a black person you do not know if you've been told all your life they're not clean they're always stealing stuff they're violent they're dangerous then it makes sense that if you've heard this since childhood, even if you've been trying to push against that, back in your subconscious, your default may still be to double check the Black person's um, application for a loan or for a grant. You know, you may feel compelled to ask for more references from your Black applicant than another applicant. You don't even know where this stuff comes from. You have to become aware of how pervasive this programming is for you to even start catching it in yourself. And only after you've done that work, can you start seeing how is this coming up in my practice? How is this affecting people who come into my gym or to who come to get any kind of counseling from me? And how am I speaking? Am I speaking in such a way that assumes that everybody's perception of what is valuable as far as food goes, as far as family priorities goes is everything through one cultural lens or do i phrase my 
content in such a way that anybody can apply it to themselves? Do I leave enough room for people to bring in what is important to them as an individual? Or am I so convinced that my culture is the best one, which it's not weird to think that your culture is the best one if you're American, because that's literally what we're yeah, told that's what we push. constantly, constantly. Yeah. If you go abroad, you'll notice that nobody else puts up their flags everywhere like we do. Nobody else like across the board has that same level of nationalism and we're number one, we're the best. And when you think, well, what is American? Who are we constantly being told? Who's the best? Who's number one? When I travel abroad, people all the time don't believe me when I say I'm from the U.S. because of how white the media is, especially if they're getting older movies. Like if you're in certain parts of Asia, you're probably not getting 2023 movies you really don't know that there's a large black population or a large non-white population because that's not who's typically showcased. And if all you see are people who seem to be extras, who are not central to the plot, who are throwaway characters, who die in the first five minutes of the horror movie, then you think these are probably people who immigrated to America. You don't understand these are people who are born and raised there and have no other place to call home. I've even met people who literally moved to the Atlanta area from Africa that said they were shocked when they got to the <laughs> Atlanta airport. They were so surprised <laughs> by the actual demographics in Atlanta. Yeah. And, and there's so many other layers that come along with what you're describing is how we internalize bias, right? Um, and and I want to peel, and again, the next, the next peel of this onion uh, but first, you're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Darlene Marshall. My guest is Dahlia Kinsley. And we are talking about decolonizing wellness, um, you know, all of these, this identity conversation and bias in the wellness space. Um, I want to read a quote from the book. It's a quick snippet, but it's one that really stuck out and resonated with me. Quote, it's impossible to promote change in anyone you hold in low esteem, end quote. Um, you know, we've talked about fat phobia on the show. We've talked about internalized bias on the show before, but, you know, even, even you brought up as a practitioner, if we haven't mapped our biases and our cultural awareness, um, you know, not only our own culture, but the value in others that our education system for practitioners, right? The certifications, your degree, it's baked in there too. Oftentimes it's even baked into the research. And so there's all these layers to it. And as you were talking about um, prioritizing white cultural identity in America, I couldn't help but think of, I, I'm working with a Puerto Rican family and I have for a few years. And there's one member of the family who has really internalized this message that um, rice is bad mm. for her. Um, and as a Puerto Rican family, that's part of their cultural food staples, right? Is rice. And I couldn't help but think as you were talking about whiteness in the wellness space and your experience, like one of the hangovers that we have is that traditional foods get marginalized as bad. I have an Italian husband. Pasta is bad, soft quote, mm. right? And so I guess where I'm leading with this is, you know, of our audience, the likelihood just statistically white, cis, and or straight, able-bodied, thin, you know, 
when we are practitioners who are holding space for people who have identities that we are not identified with, um, and it's very likely we might not even be aware of our own biases in our practices unless you've done a lot of digging. And even then, right, we, we can't know what we don't know. And I'd love to hear your guidance for those of us who want to get it right. How, we, how do we get more right? Yeah. Knowing that it's not a perfect practice for any of us. Exactly. I, I think that's important to emphasize is that there's no way anything that involves two humans is going to be like easy peasy, smooth sailing all the time. That's just not how it works. But setting up an environment where it's safe for people to point things out, trying to bring more people into the decision-making process. So even if you're at a small facility, do you have any diversity on your team? Like people of different ages, people from different parts of the country, people hopefully also from different ethnic backgrounds. It can be surprising sometimes how much a difference that even makes and what people will spot. So if you are working on maybe imaging or something for the website, have more than one person look at it and say what they think is missing or if they see themselves reflected back in the materials, have comment boxes available. But also with that, you have to do a practice where you feel safe receiving input Mm -hmm. or feedback because you Mm -hmm. could also feel triggered if you're, especially since like you said, so much of this field, it's a lot of people who are socialized female And that's not the easiest road either. So you may be so up to here with constantly being told you're not doing enough, you're not enough, that maybe you're easily triggered by anything that feels like a criticism when you're doing the literal best that you can. But just understanding that when people give you an invitation to see something that maybe you miss, it doesn't mean you're wrong. It doesn't mean you're bad. And it's part of it. It's just part of it. Like the more you interact with other people, the more you learn. And I know for myself, I do an exercise in a lot of my presentations. It's basically a marginalized identity inventory. And sometimes I do it in relation to body image, like what are your identities and which ones are linked to you feeling empowered and secure and which ones have been linked to you feeling like you have to strive or you have to prove something. Most people socialized female are going to mark being a woman or being femme presenting as something that's linked to them feeling like they always have to prove something. It's not just enough, you know, Um, but there's always something that you leave out and that tells you right there you're probably experiencing a lot of power in that area. So one that multiple people had to point it out to me that kept leaving age off of the slide because Mm. I'm middle-aged now, but just like barely middle-aged and (laughs) I'm not really getting the heat that people get as they get older, like into senior citizen status. But anyone who is a senior would never forget that ageism is a real and present issue in their lives. But I don't get like distraught when people are like, ah, you're being ageist again. I just realize, oh, yeah, I keep forgetting that because I have so much privilege in that area. 
it's off of my radar. And the ableism as well, I experience periods of being disabled, but by and large, I'm not getting any major heat for being disabled and I don't usually need any mobility devices. So that's another area where I'm likely to miss things. So I need other people to point these things out to me. And over time, I've gotten better, but I'm never going to be at the level of somebody who has that lived experience and is an advocate for people with disabilities. And just knowing that you're never going to know everything and you don't have to, to be valid and enough. And you don't have to, to be capable of creating a welcoming space, but you have to be capable of receiving negative feedback. And I think communicating to people what your intentions are can be very helpful. So if you have a statement on your website about your dedication to inclusion, or if you tell people in the first visit that, you know, you recognize that you maybe have privilege in certain areas, but you really, really want for everyone to get the most out of working with you, you know, making it safe and continuing that invitation. Because for so many people, you've been, I know I have been really <laughs> beaten up verbally for giving people any kind of feedback, no matter how I put it, no matter <laughs> how much I've tried to pull punches, you know, people who just haven't done any work around that, they can be so sensitive and get really hostile if you point out anything to them. So most people are not going to feel safe if you just say it once, or if you just put up one sign or one comment on your site, it really has to be an ongoing conversation that mm. you know, there are things you're likely to miss, but you want to create a space where their wellness can actually be prioritized and centered. And it's really helpful to start exposing yourself to other voices, even if you can't get access to certain people like in your real life and your day to day. Cause I know sometimes in the Midwest and other places, it can be hard to really embed yourself in diverse communities. You may not live near people with lots of different cultural backgrounds, but anybody can go to the library. Anybody can, you know, pick up a book, watch more movies that don't center people who look just like you and experiment with getting comfortable with not being centered at all. Like I've gotten a ton of benefit from books that didn't center me. It gets excessive when you're never <laughs> centered. <laughs> but it's good. Like you said earlier, we can relate to so many different human experiences yeah. And we need to expose ourselves to other perspectives or else there will really be no hope of us starting to notice our own culture because it's like a fish in water. How do you describe what water is to them? I know even for myself, even though I'm only half American, I really had to leave the U.S. to realize what mm -hmm. would give me homesickness and what parts of America I love and I can't get over my attachment to, hot water is one of them. Ice water too, honestly. <laughs> Low bet. Low bet. <laughs> I know we're sucking up all the energy with our hot water and our ice water, but I'm just so accustomed to it. And there's so many things like customer service things, being able to advocate for yourself. That's not a thing everywhere, but I wouldn't have even known why did some of my clients at the health department who came from other 
countries have so much trouble reporting when they've been verbally abused by someone in a mm-hmm. position of authority. Well, where they're from, that is not a thing. Not a there thing. is no suggestion box. No. And some yeah. places you can be in danger for doing it. Right. Um, so I want to highlight a few things from what you just said. Like the first is just to appreciate that even as someone that I admire when talking about inclusivity, owning your own blind spot, right? Like, like a comment on ageism, um, you know, and, and the occasional ableism. Um, but you also said something that I want to highlight from a practitioner perspective, not only for practitioners who are listening, but for people who are looking for practitioners to work with. Um, I, I know that it's something that I do myself. And I also just want to like thumbs up it and plus it and, and amplify the mic is owning privilege when you are working with someone who you know their lived identities are just different than your lived experience. Um, and so, for example, when working with a Black client or my Puerto Rican family, I'd be like, okay, as a you know rural white woman, I don't know these things about your experience, but I will hold space if you will share them with me. And letting them feel safe and seen and, hey, I'm going to need your help in understanding the parts that I will definitely mm-hmm. miss for these reasons, and I know I will miss them. And so just as a practitioner, sharing that with a potential client or a current client isn't disempowering. It's how we let them know that we are a safe space to open that box with so that we can actually be effective at the thing we're trying to do, whatever our helping profession is. And Um, I think it takes a lot of pressure off letting, defining what the relationship is going to be between you two, that you're not this totalitarian figure who has all the answers, that you actually co-create solutions together because no one knows more about their life and their body than they do. You're a guide, not like the teacher. And I think that really, really, really helps put less pressure on you, but also make it clear that you're not getting less of a service if this person doesn't know all the things about you, because how could they, they literally don't know you as an individual, but I really appreciate that you phrase it. It's an invitation because not all black people, not all Puerto Rican people, not all anybody are even going to feel that they have a lot of distinct cultural things going on that need to be addressed or acknowledged. That's not a universal experience either. So just putting it out there and then seeing what Yeah, what comes up? What comes up, right? And like you just said, letting the client know whoever they are. You are the expert on you. I'm going to share information about people. And then we're going to work together. Um, Dahlia, it's about that time. So I just want to thank you so much for coming on with us and sharing your stories and your wisdom um, you know, it's a journey for all of us to, to be more better. And I'm grateful to have, share some space with you. Um, thank you so much. Is there anything that you want to plug? Name your podcast. Share your yes. podcast. And tell where you can find it. Body Liberation for All. You'll find it the same place you listen to this show. It's on all major podcast players. And I really recommend picking up the book to see what does it look like when someone is speaking directly to Black mm. people, Indigenous people, people of color. And when someone's speaking directly to trans people, LGBTQIA plus people, because that's been the most interesting feedback from so many folks who said, I didn't even know that I'd never seen that before. Yeah. (laughs) Just seeing like, oh, 
really almost everything you read is directed at white people. You may not even notice. So. White, straight, thin, cis people. Able-bodied. Right? Femme people. Able-bodied. Yep. Thank you. <laughs> I, miss, I missed my own. Um, so Dahlia, thank you so much. Again, I'm just gonna, gonna echo it. Her book is, uh, Dahlia's book is Decolonizing Wellness, a QT BIPOC-centered guide to escape the diet trap, heal yourself image and achieve body liberation. I also just wanna say one more time, it hurts us all when wellness is only one thing. Even if you're the person centered in that Venn diagram, it hurts you because it puts you in a box that you're now expected um, you know, from those projected identities to step into. And as somebody who was very uncomfortable trying to be shoehorned in that box and really literally couldn't fit in it, um, it, it opens it up for all of us. So if from this conversation, you also feel inspired that you would like to maybe become a wellness practitioner, well, uh, I've got a little something for you. NASM, the National Academy of Sports Medicine, the producer of this show right here, um, has a wellness coaching certification that's been built by experts in sleep, stress, coaching, neuroscience, movement, positive psychology. I was one of those experts. It was really cool. I'm super proud of it. Well, that certification has a discount right now on NASM's website. I believe it's 50% off, just saying. Well, listeners to this show get an additional $600 off Woo. Uh, with the code Marshall, C-W-C, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L-C-W-C. So you go to NASM.org, you click wellness at the top, you use that code M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L-C-W-C for an additional $600 off, whatever the current price is. Also, I would love to hear your feedback on this show. Did you love our conversation? Did you hate our conversation? Are you feeling super triggered and you want to tell me all about it? Well, you could find me on the interwebs. I'm Instagram, Darlene.coach. You can find me easy on LinkedIn. My email is info at Darlene.coach. My substack is coachdar.substack.com. And if you're a fan of the show, I hope you've already subscribed. I hope you've written us a review. I've hoped that you share and tag us so that we can continue to pass along because shows grow when you love them so much that you tell other people about it. Thank you so much. Be well, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.